Hello and welcome to Malanga Talk podcast. My name is Jerry Malanga and I'm joined with our fellow Dr. Josh Martin and we're here to give another educational talk for our future physicians. I hope you enjoy it. So today we're talking about greater trochanteric pain syndrome. This is a diagnosis that is actually going to be something you'll see come pretty often into your office, but often it's not properly diagnosed and not properly treated. Yeah, thanks, uh, Josh. So uh, we've been discussing this a little bit over the past few days, and you know, uh, it is a, an extraordinarily common diagnosis that's seen in primary care and orthopedic practices and PM&R practices um, with a lot of misunderstanding, misdiagnosis, uh, improper assessments, improper management. So really important for us to get an uh, understanding of this. So first starts with the diagnosis of uh, greater trochanteric bursitis. Uh, so what's the problem with that, Josh? So... Very often when people come in and are diagnosed with greater trochanteric bursitis, that's not actually what's the underlying pathology for creating pain. So you'll be having a patient that comes into the office, often with lateral hip pain, you might push on it and the patient would be tender, which would be consistent you know, with the diagnosis of greater trochanteric pain syndrome, which is more pain in the area, but I'm not getting into the exact you know, anatomic location yet once we have, these, have that part of the exam. Very often once people do, or some providers, if they notice that there is just pain there, they'll just reflexively say, oh, this is a bursitis, and then they might treat with steroid, which is actually the opposite of what you'd want to do in a lot of these cases. Um, they've actually looked at the underlying what's going on. It's usually more commonly issues with uh, tendinopathy, especially of your gluteal muscles, especially the uh, gluteus medius. Only about... Less than 20% of the time is there a true bursitis underneath. So uh, part of our discussions and uh, things have been related to a review on a topic that was published in the Pain Medicine in 2016 by Dr. Monica Rowe, a very good PM&R specialist uh, from Chicago, uh, who did an entire review um, in a series actually uh, discussing or with a topic heading of deconstructing chronic low back pain in the older patient. And this comes up because of the common association of having buttock, lateral hip, posterior lateral uh, buttock pain in patients that have low back pain um, and then can have other secondary diagnoses. So the series kind of goes over um, looking at back pain in, in general and various subheadings of back pain. So this was part of this. This was part seven that is headed lateral hip and thigh pain. Um, so within it was that reference that says um, only 20% of patients that are diagnosed with um, greater trochanteric bursitis actually have uh, bursal inflammation. I think the more common literature would say it's probably less than 10%. And uh, certainly um, in those patients that don't have a rheumatologic disorder, it, it's extraordinarily low. So really super uncommon to have that. So a bursitis, what, what is a bursa? So a bursa, um, you'd often think of kind of a small fluid space allowing two structures such as muscle to rub over each other without having too much friction. Right. So it's a potential space. So if, uh, minimal amounts of fluid normally and allows for gliding and 
reduction of friction over areas of uh, tendons and overlying tendons and near tendon insertion. So, and there are common bursal things that uh, we're aware of. So everyone's aware of this subacromial bursa um, in, in the shoulder and then the uh, greater trochanteric bursa is the other thing that, that comes up. So, and so what would cause a bursitis then? So you have a bursa, we know what a bursa does. Why do we get bursitis? So you might think if there's uh, a mechanical imbalance where you're having more rubbing forces over those tendons than you'd typically expect to be there. Yeah, so uh, shearing, um, wear of the overlying tendons, inflammatory mediators released from those overlying tendons, sort of the secondary irritation of the bursa. Um, you can get trauma to the bursa. So the, there are areas where you can get acute traumatic bursitis from a direct blow and then bleeding and then uh, swelling. Um, in the knee uh, and elbow, you can get uh, various bursitis related to friction and rubbing over those areas. So you can get the lecranon bursitis often related to somebody irritation of that uh, and often related to rheumatologic disorders and then you can get a uh, prepatellar bursitis which is somebody that does a lot of activities on their knees and uh, rubbing of that bursa and that bursa can become inflamed and irritated in the hip area what would cause a bursitis then very commonly if you would have weakness of um, your abductors um, if you'd have like a weak glute medius minimus, um, you could have, you know, a slight lean like Trendelenburg kind of gait where you'd have more um, forces across um, those gluteal tendons at you know, across the greater um, trochanteric area um, rubbing and, you know, more of an angle that I'd say is a little bit less anatomic. So is that your working theory or do you have a reference for that? Uh be more of my working theory. All right. Uh, pretty reasonable. I mean, uh, mm -hmm. at least a thoughtful uh, look at it. What, what other structure uh, runs along the lateral aspect of the posterior lateral hip like and thigh? That, IT bands? Yeah. Um, and so that IT band can move uh, anterior to posterior and uh, can do that, especially if there's underlying weakness of the hip abductors, the gluteus minimus and medius. And then you do have a relative unevenness uh, when you get into a stance pattern, a gait pattern with what is referred to as a Trendelenburg gait pattern. So what is a Trendelenburg gait pattern? What is that? So what do you see? Well, for example, let's say you have weakness of your hip abductors on your right leg. You would see that the opposite side, so your left side would then tilt downward a little bit since you don't really have that strength to keep that part of the pelvis upright. Um, sometimes you can see what's called a compensated Trendelenburg, where the uh, patient may try to compensate with a trunk lean. So they would then you know, lean their trunk back to that right side to try to help bring up that you know, left hip. What it actually does is it changes the mechanical advantage to allow for less of a need for firing of the muscle and an improved mechanical advantage of that muscle. 
So, um, and, and the, what's the other way that you could treat somebody that has a weakness of their gait with a Trendelenburg type gait pattern? Yeah, other than strengthening the muscle, correct. Give them a cane. Correct. Excellent. And which side should they have the cane? On the ipsilateral side. Ipsilateral to the weakness? Opposite. Opposite to the weakness. Opposite to the weakness, okay. And uh, a Trendelenburg gait pattern is not only associated with things like uh, greater trochanteric pain, gluteal tendinopathy tear, but also is associated with people that have hip osteoarthritis. It's a really famous article by an orthopedic surgeon by the name Blount, B-L-O-U-T. Now, what's the name of that article? Don't Throw Away the King. Right? That was probably written in the 1930s. So, um, and an orthopedic surgeon, but uh, recognized that by having a cane in the opposite hand, that increased the, the lever arm and allowed for a greater biomechanical advantage and allowed for a decrease in the force and offloaded the hip joint uh, to help people that had hip osteoarthritis, but it would also reduce this Trendelenburg gait pattern, right? So, uh, so in this article by Rowe et al., I noted that in the article it says, if the patient intentionally shifts his or her trunk over the stance leg, thereby elevating the contralateral pelvis. So is it an intentional? So I would, I would suggest that, and maybe I'm, you guys know this a bit, I'm hung up on words, that it's done without any level of intent. It's just a, a sort of engram that gets developed by the patient. Because if you ask the patient, why are you bending over like that? I don't think they, they would look at you and go, well, I'm not sure what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not intentionally. It's a compensated pattern that our bodies are kind of understand how to do it. Um, so it said, and then the article I found was interesting because it talks about that the Trendelenburg sign is positive in 54% of all pe people with chronic low back pain. So why do you think that is? Because a lot of them have hip abductor weakness. Okay, why? Say again. Back pain, they're not. Uh, they're not as active. Their so atrophy. So, yeah. So only on one side. Wouldn't they be waddling on both sides? I mean, wouldn't it be symmetric? So let me ask you this: um, What nerve roots innervate the hip abductors? Bring L five. And what else? L five and S one. Right. Yeah. What levels of the lumbar spine are most commonly involved in disc pathology and most low back pain? L5, S1. Wow. Fascinating. <laughs> so perhaps a chronic uh, nerve root dysfunction leading to a lack of ability to fire the muscles that are innervated by those nerve roots and then leading to a progressive weakening, a weakness. So... Uh, and I think we were talking about SI joint pain at some point, so I'm going to weave in SI joint pain with this. So with that Chandelenburg gait pattern then, you can get shearing um, over the greater, we talked about over the greater trochanter at the IT band, but then you can also get shearing at the sacroiliac joint, right? So you can imagine that, you know, you're up and down, and so you can get irritation of the sacroiliac joint. 
At the same time, because those big muscles aren't firing, your body tries to adapt and other muscles underneath try to fire. So what are the other muscles that also attach to the greater trochanter that are involved in maybe trying to stabilize? What are the other muscles that could potentially try to fire to maintain stability? Like the tensor fasciolata? Well, tensor fasciolata is a confluence yeah. of various muscles that form the fascial plane. Okay. So what's, what are some muscles deep to the glutes? You have the glute backs, you have the glute medius, minimus. What's what's lying? Piriformis. So your piriformis tries to kick in and tries to be helpful. But the piriformis is a wispy little muscle. Can't keep up. And so the piriformis then tries to stabilize, but it fatigues, it tightens, and it becomes painful. So this, so this same group then ends up having, quote-unquote, piriformis syndrome. And then people do injections of the piriformis. How it became a problem in the first place is mind-boggling to me. And why you would inject it to think that it would do something is also perplexing. And God forbid there are people who would even suggest injecting it with a corticosteroid. When we know that it's not an inflammatory muscle problem. And we know the significant negative effects of corticosteroids on muscle. And yet that is commonly done in PM&R practices over and over again. I, years ago, working with prior residents, came across or developed this theory called the Malanga Triad. So the Malanga Triad is SI joint pain, piriformis pain, and greater trochanteric pain related to. And none of those things should be treated in isolation. None of those things should be approached with a 22-gauge needle. All of those things should be looked at as a problem with an upstream problem, meaning a nerve root spinal problem that you need to address. Um, usually, with, again, without a 22-gauge needle. You don't need to do a transfemoral epidural injection at L5 and S1. You don't need to do an interlaminar injection. And you certainly don't go around trying to inject the sacroiliac joint, right? You should get to the root cause, which, again, ends up being strengthening the things that have been inhibited um, that will stabilize the spine and will stabilize the pelvis. So hip abductors, uh, core, hip extensors, back extensors, and all those problems will recede and go away. Um, piriformis could be involved in a rehab process, meaning that over time, if that muscle continues to fire and be tight and spasm, it, uh, and tighten down and spasm, uh, it can get tight, and so part of the process would be involving stretches of the piriformis, and part of the process comprehensively would be stretching of the proximal IT band. And then you'd see a lot of these things start to recede without any other treatment intervention. Okay, so um, Dr. Rowe um, in this series then uh, goes, does this review and then part of the review is also uh, is a presentation of a typical patient. So just summarize what that patient scenario is that was presented in this. So elderly patient comes in. 90-year-old patient. Yeah, 90-year-old patient comes in with low back pain mm -hmm. and some pain at the lateral hip. This is tender on exam. Um, well, a little bit more about the patient. So patient had a history of sacral insufficiency fracture, I believe, right? Oh, yes. Yep. Osteoporosis, right? Yep. 
Sorry. So she had um, thoracic vertebral compression fracture, degenerative left medial meniscal tear. It was presenting with uh, stabbing, left lateral hip pain. Um, pain was chronic, but had been progressing in severity over the last month. Um, patient couldn't really identify any inciting event or fall. And this pain was exacerbated by lying on the left affected side, and it was affecting the patient's sleep. At baseline, the patient ambulated with the rolling walker, but the pain was starting to limit her ability to walk. She did also have that history of low back pain, posterior left buttock pain, and at least at this time, she denied current pain in these regions. She also denied weakness or pain that radiated down to lower extremity. Okay. And then... So on physical examination, um, she had no pain with lumbar or hip range of motion. She had full symmetric and pain-free lower extremity strength. Her neuro exam was also fairly unremarkable with deep tendon reflexes, sensational light touch intact. Um, She did have a positive Trendelenburg sign with single leg stance bilaterally. So how does she have a Trendelenburg sign and uh, her physical exam shows no muscle weakness? That would be muscle weakness. Okay. Yeah. But that's examination of her gait. Yeah. What does that tell you about some of the issues related to physical examination? Not inspection, no, but what like wasn't noted. Grading or noting the hip abduction weakness. Yeah. I would bet you that if we put that patient sideline and yeah. tested her hip abductors, that she would generate close to zero amount of force if she could at all even get her leg anti-gravity in abduction. That should be part of your physical exam, right? And this patient also was tender to palpation over that left greater trochanter, but not the right. Um, Ober's seated slump and straight leg raise were done and were all negative. I'm going to suggest that her ober was probably not done appropriately. As noted, when I assess residents and fellows doing an over, one of the key components of doing an over is making sure that you get the femur and the hip at zero and not in slight flexion. So, um, and sometimes, you know, you really have to kind of do it and make sure you do that. And when you do that, sure enough, the leg will raise up and will, dem- will help demonstrate the tightness that exists within the IT band. I would be shocked if that there wasn't evidence of tightness of her IT band. Yeah, I'd agree. That's definitely one test that I have seen often done incorrectly. And then with, you know, people with more experience coming in and saying, look, you really have to extend that leg, that thigh back more to really engage the IT band. And then you'll see that leg, you know, hanging out there in space in a way that it kind of wasn't. I kind of got used to position my um, form underneath um, the patient's leg. And I kind of like to lift upwards and then back and try to feel the IT band engage under my arm. And then I let go a little bit, and I can feel it, um, you know, that thigh the tension, hanging. You can the feel tension. the tension that develops. And it's important that the bottom leg is flexed to 90 and held there, and you ask the patient to hold it. So that kind of locks in the pelvis as you're, you're testing that flexibility. And so. when I do that test, I also will have my other arm um, stabilizing their hips to make sure that they're not rolling in a way that they could try to um, cheat the exam. Well, they're not cheating, but they, kind of they'll roll, roll back, roll and, back. And, and it'll give you an inaccurate assessment of, of the IT band. Yep. And then so, for assessment of at least the gluteus medius in that similar position, 
often patients may try to cheat that exam by flexing their hip a little bit forward, in which case you're not isolating the gluteus medius. Um, so that's one where I also do try to stabilize with my contralateral arm to try to make sure I'm really focusing on the muscle yeah, that I want. Yeah, so what, what do they cheat with? Oh, with what, like the, what, like what helps probably it? like vastus lateralis, maybe a little bit. No, it's probably the, the TFL. TFL. Right, which is the TFL represents the spatial confluence of the gluteus maximus and uh, the other glute muscles. But yeah, yeah. And so for this patient, then there was some imaging done. Um, in this article, it notes that there was a focused ultrasound that was performed by a musculoskeletal physiatrist, um, revealed evidence of bursitis of the left greater trochanter, um, which correlated with the patient's point of max maximal tenderness. Yeah. So, um, no description of the gluteal tendons then? Correct. Not in yeah, this case, presentation. Okay. Very important, right? So, the vast majority of folks that would develop uh, a level of bursal uh, fluid or bursitis will have significant tendinopathy of their gluteus minimus and medius tendons. Use the medius, but minimus as well. And sometimes could even have a tear of those tendons that would be important to, to note. Uh, and the other important thing to note would be whether there's a presence or absence of uh, neovessels or, you know, color Doppler flow, which would suggest an inflammatory process. And maybe you would want to work the patient up for something else if, if there's a lot of neovessels, right? Yeah. So, so next in the vignette, um, the patient was diagnosed with greater trochanteric pain syndrome. Um, that included an inflammatory component. Um, as so uh, let me just stop you there yeah. because you used the term a couple of times, and I, and I actually like the term, and it's a term that's been embraced in the literature a little bit. Uh, so it's instead of, uh, so we, we start off with a, a historical uh, um, greater trochanteric bursitis, knowing that that's a, not a true diagnosis for most people. Then we've evolved to saying this is almost universally a uh, the gluteus medius or greater trochanteric tendinopathy, right, insertional tendinopathy. But uh, people have noted that people can have tendinopathy without pain. So if you check the other side without pain, they would have tendinopathy on that side. And so what is now suggested is perhaps a more precise, yes, yet more vague term, right, is greater trochanteric pain syndrome, right? So something causes that area to become painful. Something causes a tendon that has got some wear and tear or tendinopathy to go from a tendinopathy that's not painful to a tendinopathy that's painful. And those same terminologies are used for what used to be called lateral epicondylitis, right? And now it's been called, you know, common extensor tendinopathy, but many people have called it epicondylitis, lateral epicondylitis, a pain syndrome. Why? And, and the, the people that have actually looked at pain mediators are in that area, uh, again, with the knowledge that you can have an ultrasound and other imaging studies that show tendinopathy in your average person having zero pain and that what would turn on something from having something without pain and then having pain is a little obscure. Obviously, there are inflammatory mediators that are inflammatory pain mediators. Those are referred to as um, sort of cytokines that will, will, will result in nociception, right? So nociceptive pain. Um, okay, so yeah. greater trochanteric pain. Yes. But in this case, if indeed she had a bursal 
swelling and thickening and inflammation, she would indeed be a gritotrochanteric bursitis patient, right? Or bursopathy, if you didn't want to call it yeah. bursitis. So that would be precise for her because you, you, you showed that, right? But again, I think missing, just like in the shoulder, it is extraordinarily rare for you to just have a subacromial bursitis out of the blue, right? Without anything else. So if you have that, then you need to seek out what would cause that bursa, just like we talked about what a bursa is and what causes bursitis. What would cause that bursa to fill up with fluid and become inflamed and irritated? Is it an underlying inflammatory disorder? Is it a wear of the tendons? Is, a, is it a traumatic event? Is it an underlying osteoarthritis process? Yeah, so in the vignette, um, the patient was educated about hip abductor strengthening exercises, but the patient was not interested in doing any of these exercises regularly. <laughs> so instead, she asked for a steroid injection, and then ultimately an ultrasound-guided greater trochanteric burst injection was performed by the physiatrist. So if that patient said, I'm not interested in doing what is the appropriate thing to do, and she said, but I am interested in getting 60 milligrams of Oxycontin, would we write for 60 milligrams of Oxycontin? No. So understanding the needs of patients and being uh, sensitive to those and, and trying to be uh, patient-centered, uh, we should think about what are the patient's desires. But we are the counselors in this area. But just because a patient asks for something based upon somebody else probably telling her how well somebody else's shotgun did, doesn't mean you do that. So go ahead. Uh, yeah. So I guess a little bit of some of my own, you know, commentary it is, you know, sometimes frustrating for providers when, you know, based on a lot of the education and things that we've seen and know about what actually will help uh, patients get better. Um, a lot of these things do require work on the patient's end, especially with physical therapy. You know, often if someone's overweight, it might require dietary changes. So there are challenges in trying to, you know, guide the patient not only to this is the treatment, but actually having them do it. So sometimes spending a little bit of time with some motivational interviewing, you know, letting them know that this is really what you need to do to actually help correct some of the underlying biomechanical processes that might actually be something that's really worth doing yeah so um, education they, yeah. yeah so that they said they did education yeah. yeah um and i give them credit for that but it can't be lip service education like you see in the emrs where there's just the line that says educated regarding the need for cessation of cigarette smoking or educated regarding the need to reduce weight right that has to be something a little bit more robust if you're truly educated. But part of this educational process is that you have to let the patient know that these are important things that will help you now and down the road, and they'll help you with a lot of other things, number one. Number two, a shot of cortisone, if you look at the research to support it, is really meager. And in fact, there are multiple negative effects of me doing that to you. It, it has negative effects in almost anyone but you're 90 years old, you've had uh, several uh, compression fractures, stress fractures, and cortisone weakens bone, right? So I can't give you something that, number one, isn't a definitive treatment. 
and I'll use this analogy over and over mm -hmm. again, uh, and I'll use it here because maybe I haven't done it. It's like giving your kids Captain Crunch because they're hungry for dinner, because they, they're really hungry and they're crying. And so every once in a while, when you're in a stressful situation, you, you'll do that just to kind of keep them from crying. That doesn't last very long. Uh, the child cries again, and then you have two options. You're going to give them Captain Crunch again, knowing that that is not a healthy thing to do for your child. Or you're going to be the adult that understands more than the child and say to the child, no, I can't give you Captain Crunch. I have to give you something that's better for you. And they're going to cry and they're not going to understand it until later. But you're the adult. You're the one with the knowledge, right? And so the same with when you're working with a patient. Although when you're working with a patient, they too are adults. And so you can transfer that same level of knowledge that you've achieved through your understanding of uh, anatomy, biomechanics, uh, the, the medical literature, and say to them, look, I need to do what's right for you, right? Because in medicine, and we'll get to the letter to the editor that followed this, but our first premise is first do no harm, right? And that's in spite of the fact that everybody else might be doing something, right? We should not be falling into peer pressure of doing things, of treating patients based upon what everybody else is not doing correctly. And, and in spite of the fact of known medical literature, that that shouldn't be done. Well, there's also just one thing to add to that. I think it is very important for all providers to be able to really understand even what we're recommending for what physical therapy can do to the, for the patients so that we can explain in layman's terms of why the patient really needs to do it. If someone actually understands why something's going to be beneficial, they're significantly more likely to actually do it. For sure. For sure. And uh, we may not have discussed this, but the, um, the word doctor, what is the word doctor? What does it derive from? What does it mean in its derivation? Teacher. Teacher. We can pick a different first names if we want. So instead of us calling ourselves Dr. So-and-so, but if you're going to call yourself a doctor then you're somewhat obligated to be a teacher. And that takes time and it takes effort. And in the world of seeing patients in seven minutes and feeling stressed, um, that often falls by the wayside. And thus we have a healthcare system that's not really doing so well. But again, uh, like I said earlier, if you spend a little bit of time here, and if we spent a little bit of money nurturing that, then we would save so much money and so much time and issues later. Okay. Right. So, so having read that, um, I, I was a bit concerned by what was being put out there. Is there anything else in the case to, and uh, the rest of it that we need to kind of discuss before I do that? Um, there were, uh, the doctor article did mention, um, you know, that greater trochanteric pain syndrome is very, very common in low back pain, kind of as we already touched upon, but it's also more common in women as well, possibly because they also do have a wider pelvic structure. The wider pelvis is an important factor in female athletes and female athletic sports and the change in the, the Q angle that occurs and, their, and their, uh, uh, the valgus that occurs at the knee with jumping and landing, because that wider pelvis is, is often associated with uh, inability to control the femur. 
in abduction and, and weakness of the abductor. So there is sort of this tie-in, but I don't think the wider pelvis is the true tie-in for developing greater trochanteric pain syndrome. And in the discussion, um, the article does mention first-line treatment is that hip, hip strengthening program. There was a mention that in the minority of cases, there may be an inflammatory pathology in which corticosteroids are sometimes considered um, to provide some temporary relief for that small subset of patients. But even in these patients, the effect will only be temporary if the, biochem or if the biomechanical etiology is not addressed. And the article does mention that corticosteroids should be used with caution in older adults because there are a lot of systemic side effects, including hypertension, hyperglycemia, increased appetite, edema, immune suppression, behavior and sleep alterations, and with frequent repeated use, there's also some hormonal and bone density effects as well. And there is also, in the article mentioned, um, that corticosteroid injections are also toxic to local tenocytes and can actually contribute to worsening of the tenopathy and partial tears in the area. So I end it by saying, you know, the practice of medicine uh, really requires us to provide the most effective evidence-based treatments with the first caveat of first do no harm, um, and that uh, uh, the argument against the corticosteroids for greater trochanteric bursa wouldn't be supported by evidence-based medicine, both in terms of effective treatment as well as avoiding the potential harmful effects of that injection. So a bursopathy or bursitis, um, and it is associated with perhaps color flow Doppler and uh, neovessels and things that would be truly inflammatory. Uh, I don't think you have any rationale for uh, injecting with a corticosteroid. Uh, so any other thoughts or questions or comments? Um, as we said earlier regarding a, a particular case, Sometimes it actually makes pretty good sense, so you're not going to argue against it. You say, yeah, okay, that makes sense. But when you really start to think about it more deeply, um, whatever is held up as making sense starts to fall apart. And when it falls apart and when there's research that supports that, you know, greater trochanteric pain is not a bursitis. And there's research to show that there is a great need for addressing biomechanical issues that are very successful and that corticosteroids are harmful to the underlying tendon and tissues and that there's systemic effects, then you really, you know, need to use what is already out there. Okay. I want to thank you for joining us on this podcast and I appreciate your time. I hope this was informative and will benefit you and your medical education. Hope you all have a great day.